In our series, The Church as Diaspora, we're going to be looking this morning at the Apostle Paul's ministry in the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17. And the passage that we're going to be looking at is going to help us here in the 21st century to understand, to interpret what is happening in the human soul. The ability to interpret what is happening in you, what is happening around you, uh, the ability to interpret uh, the reality in which you see is critically important, especially during times of uncertainty and chaos. Today, during the coronavirus event, we are called upon uh, to constantly interpret and reinterpret the world around us. We have to interpret the changing trends that we see in the economy, in the stock market. We have to interpret the changing information and, and uh, decide if we're going to believe the, uh, the, uh, the information, the facts that are coming at us related to the virus. We have to interpret the president's tweets and the political polls in terms of what it means for the future of our country. Uh, some of us are trying to interpret conspiracy theories by voices like QAnon in culture. Uh, we turn on the television and we watch the NBA finals or college football and we see big data analytics interpreting for us the percentages of a certain offensive or defensive play and who's going to win or lose the game. Uh, we watch a Netflix documentary like The Social Dilemma that reminds us of how uh, these social media companies are using big data analytics to target market advertise to us. We live in a world where we are constantly bombarded with how we are to interpret and reinterpret what is happening around us. But today, the most important ability to interpret doesn't have to do with how we interpret the economy, politics, pop culture, or the virus. The most important ability to interpret what is happening around you and in you and in the people uh, that are around you is the ability to interpret the spiritual times in which you live in. The ability to interpret uh, what is happening in the human spirit. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him and said, Give us a sign that you are from heaven. And Jesus said, You know how to uh, interpret the sky. You know how to interpret the environment around you. But you're not able to interpret, Jesus said, the signs of the times. He was saying that, we can be experts at interpreting everything around us except for the truth. And if I had to choose two passages from the entire Bible that I think best interprets the times in which we live in, the postmodern, post-Christian times in which we live in, uh, the two sets of passages I would choose would be one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. The Old Testament passage I would use to interpret our spiritual times, the signs of the times, would be, uh, there's a verse that's actually repeated twice in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 17 and Judges chapter 21, where uh, it says that in those days, Israel had no king. And so therefore, everyone did as they saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king, and so everyone did as they saw fit. Meaning that there was a time in Israel's history where they were not, they didn't believe in ultimate truth. They didn't believe in um, having God as their ultimate king. They didn't even have a king in Israel uh, represented by a human being. And so everyone 
just defined their own morality and went their own way. And doesn't that describe post, our postmodern times? Uh, there is no truth. There is no absolute truth. Everyone just does as they see fit. But the second passage I would choose to describe our times would be the passage that we're going to look at this morning from Acts chapter 17. Paul's ministry to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, where uh, I think it's an apt description of the post-Christian times we live in. I'm spiritual. I'm good. I'm just not religious. So many people would describe themselves that way. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. As we look at Acts 17, it's going to help us to interpret the human soul in the areas of we're going to see uh, its implications for the theology of how we understand what is happening within us in terms of the image of man, how we um, how our souls are created and we stray away from God and live in ignorance as we choose to go our own way, the image of man. We're also going to see the image of God, how God has created us for a desire and a need for a relationship with him and how Every single human being, in some way, imperfectly, uh, reflects back the, the good characteristics of God. Um, and thirdly, we're going to see the image of Christ, that Christ living in us who believe, how God remakes, repairs, uh, restores, and replaces the human soul through Jesus Christ and the importance of that. So let's turn to our passage, Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 34. And let's go ahead and read that together now. Starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be preaching foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Uh, just an extraordinary time of ministry for the Apostle Paul. Such an important passage for us here today in the 21st century. Uh, I want to give a little background to what was happening in this passage. I'm going to summarize this passage, and then we're going to go on to make uh, three uh, observations, reflections on the intrinsic interpretation of the human soul inherent in this passage. So let's talk about the background and the summary first. The background, um, leading up to this point in Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 17, if you remember the, from the past few weeks, uh, as we've been following the Apostle Paul and Luke and Timothy and Silas in their ministry to Macedonia, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very first time to European soil, uh, Paul has now moved on from uh, starting a church in Philippi and Thessalonica, and uh, he has moved on from Berea as well, and he's been persecuted from uh, the Jews who have wanted him out of there. And so Paul has left Luke and Timothy and Silas um, in the various churches that they had started. And Paul moves on to Athens now. He's alone, but he summons uh, Timothy and Silas to join him. We know from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 that after Timothy had come to Paul in Athens, Paul then sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to check in on the church and minister to them and see how they're doing. We know from Acts chapter 18, the next chapter we're going to look at next week, that when Silas came to Paul in Athens, Paul then sent Silas back to Macedonia, which is the northern area of Greece, uh, presumably probably to uh, maybe Philippi, to go minister there. And so now Paul is in the region of Acacia. That's uh, the southern area uh, below Macedonia. That's all modern-day Greece. And in Acacia is the capital city of Athens. And uh, even though the Roman Empire was in power, now in Rome was the center of power, it was the center of uh, political power and uh, military power, Athens, the city of Athens, was still known as, in the Western world, uh, just the center of architecture. It was known as the center of art. It was known as the center of philosophy. And so as Paul is now alone in Athens, he's looking around in the city, the passage says, and he was distressed. He was provoked. Paraxuno, uh, paraxuno in the Greek, which meant actually more like he was angered. He was moved to deep anger as he looked around and he saw the idols in the city. Uh, because he knew that people were worshiping in ignorance false gods, and God was being denied the glory of worship, and people were being denied a relationship with God. And so Paul starts to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says in the passage. He shares about how Jesus has been risen from the dead. He starts sharing in the synagogues. He start, uh, in the synagogue, he starts sharing in the marketplace. And as he's sharing about Jesus Christ, there are some Greek philosophers that start to hear him, and they're a little bit dismissive of Paul, but they're also intrigued, and so they invite him to come share 
at the Areopagus. Uh, the Areopagus is a, a hill um, I, uh, that where they would have um, uh, kind of a high court to determine court cases, but also philosophers would uh, talk during the day about the latest philosophies. Uh, Lorraine, my wife, and I, uh, we had a chance to visit uh, Greece and Turkey last year on a tour of the Apostle uh, Paul's ministry, and one of the places we stopped was Athens. I'm going to show you a few pictures right now um, of the Areopagus and the surrounding area. Uh, this is a picture of what Mars Hill, uh, the Areopagus, actually looks like. It's called the Areopagus because it was named after um, uh, the god of war in, in Greece, and Arius. And, but in, in Rome, you know, they often give different names for the same gods that are in Greece. And so that was the god of Mars. He's also the god of war, uh, which is the same god as the god of Arius in, in Greece, uh, Greek culture. And so uh, that's why they call it Mars Hill, the Areopagus. The Areopagus is this uh, uh, rocky hill that they would go to the top of. It's not that big, um, but they would kind of sit on top and, and judge these things and uh, what's interesting about the location of the Areopagus Hill is that from it, here's another picture, you can see uh, the uh, the Acropolis, which is at the top of a higher hill. It's kind of the top, probably the highest point in all of Athens. And the Acropolis was a citadel. It was where a bunch of uh, uh, temples and buildings were, were built there. And on the Acropolis, there was the Parthenon. And the Parthenon is the temple of Athena. She was the goddess of Athens. And you can see that's the big building that stands up um, on top of the Acropolis is the Parthenon. And lastly, as you look out over the top of the Areopagus Hill, you can see uh, a large part of the city of Athens at the top of the hill. And this would have been where the Agora is. The Agora is the marketplace. This is probably where the area that Paul would have ministered the gospel in the marketplace, it says from our passage. And so uh, Paul goes on to say, when he's brought before the Areopagus and the court and the Epicureans and the Stoics, he declares to them, he says, I have seen many of your idols, and there's one idol that I saw uh, with the inscription to the unknown God. And he goes on to say, what you worship in ignorance, this unknown God, I'm now going to declare to you. That would have caught their attention. And Paul says that God has created us to be in relationship with him. God, the, there is one God who's created the heavens and the earth. He's Lord. But we have lived apart from him in ignorance, thinking that he could be worshipped in the temple or made with uh, idols of gold uh, or precious stones and precious materials. And we have distorted God into a man-made uh, idol when really God is the one who has made us and he desires a relationship with us. And so uh, Paul says, even though even your own poets have described that we are God's offspring, that in him we live and move and have our being. And so Paul goes on to say that he God commands all people to repent, to turn from these ideas of who God is, from to turn from your own worship of a man-made philosophy, and to turn and repent, because God will judge the world, Paul says, in justice. And he will do that through one man, Jesus Christ. That even though God created the world through one man, Adam, he will now judge the world through Jesus Christ, Paul says. And he has given evidence of that by raising him from the dead. The Athenians, and it goes on to say that um, many of them uh, rejected his message. Uh, some of them wanted to hear 
uh, some more about what Paul had to say and just a few of the Athenians believed. For most of the Athenians, listening to Paul's message, they would have found great offense from Paul. They would not have believed there is one God. They would not have believed that they have to repent of their um, high philosophy. Remember, uh, Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that uh, Greeks thought that the gospel was foolishness. Why did Paul use the word foolishness there? It's because in Greek culture, wisdom, knowledge was the highest virtue. And they would have taken offense at Paul's teaching that all of their philosophy was for naught. It is all wrapped up, all truth. The truth is higher than wisdom and knowledge that they had. The truth of Jesus Christ he is the embodiment of truth in God and that they need to be resurrected from the dead. They would have taken offense from that. That's the background. That's the summary of the passage. I want to make three um, uh, observations, three reflections, three intrinsic interpretations that we can draw from this passage in terms of uh, how to interpret the human soul and how God has designed it, and how it goes astray and how God can bring it back to himself. So let's go to the first. Uh, in this passage, we see uh, the interpretation of the image of man. Of the image of man in verse 16 through 21. Uh, we see the image of man, of man at work. That the image of man is something that exists in every single one of us, and it plays out in the following ways. In verse 16, going back to our passage, it says, when Paul was looking around in the city, he saw that the people worshipped idols. There was all these idols um, that people bowed down to that they had made uh, as a source of worship. Our souls, when we are living outside of God, when we are living apart from God, our soul seeks out idols to worship. Uh, we idolize people, celebrities, maybe it's a specific person in your life that you feel is really the source of your life above God. We idolize things, money, food. We idolize ourselves, uh, our body, how it looks, um, our uh, pleasurable experiences that our body can have, whether that's thrilling or uh, to help us cope with the pain of life. And why do we idolize People, why do we idolize things? Why do we idolize ourselves? Why do we even make up uh, other religions outside of God to idolize? And I, I think it's because when you don't have God in your life, and the more you go forward in life, the more you grow older, the more you mature, the more you realize how broken life is, the more you realize how much evil exists in the world and even in you, the more you realize. Uh, how much suffering there is in the world, and ultimately that your life is going to end one day, and that's it. And I think it's that realization of all of the brokenness, the evil, the suffering, and the ultimate end of life that brings us to a place where we realize we've got to search. We've got to search for life, because life itself is uh, a very bleak picture in the end, without God. How do you define what an idol is in your life? Um, I'm going to give you two functional definitions of how you can tell if we're idolizing something. Uh, number one, God has given us many things in this world to enjoy. Uh, relationships, uh, material objects, 
um, experiences that he desires to give all good gifts to his children, as the Apostle James says. Um, but something becomes an idol when it moves from simple enjoyment to where we see it now, an idol as a source of life, to where we have to have this idol um, in order to live. And that's where it's crossed over into idolatry. And secondly, we know if we're idolizing something above God, is if we are called upon to sacrifice that idol, if we are called upon to sacrifice that idol by God, his word, um, uh, God's people who are speaking wisdom into our life, if we're called upon to sacrifice that idol, and we are unable to do that. Why? Because it has become the source of our life. And the inability unwillingness to sacrifice something when we know it's the right thing to do uh, means that it has now become an idol and the source of our life. Now, why is that bad? Why would it be bad to idolize something outside of God? Uh, it's bad because God is the source of your life. The Bible says he created you. The Bible says that um, God sustains the entire earth and the heavens and that all of us were made for him. Uh, whether we come to him or not is a different issue. And God is the source of life. And idols, when we choose to live apart from God, promise us life. But in the end, they end up taking life from us. They promise us life, but in the end deliver death. And when we connect ourselves and see an idol in our lives, whether that's a person, a thing, an experience, or ourselves, or a false god, when we connect ourselves and see that idol as a source of our life, um, it actually starts to take life from us. And the reason why, um, in the words of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, is because the world is passing away, in John's words, and all that is in it. And when we connect ourselves to the idols of the world, we are connecting our soul to something that is passing away, and all that is in us, and that brings death. Instead of coming to God, the ultimate living idol, and him bringing us life. Um, I have been to Athens, um, and when you look around the city, you see these idols that were erected. And it's interesting because they're erected, for the most part, in human form. Why would uh, the Athenians make idols that are in human form? Um, the opposite of the worship of God is not atheism. It's not agnosticism. The opposite of the worship of God is the worship of man. It's the worship of ourselves as God. That is the ultimate uh, opposite direction of the worship of God. That's the problem that Satan had in uh, the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel. It describes how he fell from heaven. It says, I will become like the Most High. I will have his throne uh, he, it wasn't that he didn't believe in God. It's that he worshipped himself as God. And this is what the Athenians were doing. When they made these idols in the human form, it was actually an object of worship of themselves. Um, there's a sociologist who uh, wrote in the early 20th century named Emile Durkheim. Emile Durkheim is one of, uh, credited as one of the founders of mod the modern-day field of sociology. And Durkheim wrote in the early 20th century a book called Elementary Forms of the Religious Life. Uh, Durkheim, as a sociologist, studied Aboriginal tribes in Australia, and he came to the following conclusions. He wanted to ask, 
How do they form the totems? How do they form the idols of their worship in, uh, in a um, primitive culture? And this is what he found. He said, what a culture does is step one. They determine what it is about themselves that makes them uh, unique. Are they strong? Are they fast? Are they smart? Uh, what is it about them that makes them unique? Step one. Step two, uh, once they've determined that, they then look for an animal that best best represents their unique characteristics. And so we say, if a culture is strong, they might have an idol like an ox, strong as an ox. Or um, uh, if they're clever, they might make an idol like a fox, clever as a fox, you know, um, and so on and so forth. Third, after they determine who they are and what animal represents that, they then make a totem of that animal to worship. And this is where Durkheim brings it to a conclusion. He says, step four, what he determined is that when that culture makes a totem of the animal that best describes who they are, they are, this culture is in reality when they're worshiping the totem animal, worshiping themselves. And this is what you find in Athens. As they made these idols in human form to represent their gods, they are in reality, according to Durkheim, um, worshiping themselves, worshiping idols in, made in the image of of man. And so even though this is a pre-Christian culture, the gospel had not come to Athens, it is actually something that very much represents post-Christian culture and its idolization of man. Um, and I think when you look in verse 18, the Epicureans and the Stoics, this is an apt description of post-Christian culture. You have the uh, Epicureans, who are the humanists. These were the secular humanists. These were the people that says, I can live my life. I can be good without God. The Stoics, verse 18, were the pantheists. They were the people of self-mastery. They were the people of um, believe that God is in everything and just to be one with everything around you and to kind of eliminate desire, sort of a new age slash Buddhism. And this is what post-Christian culture is. I am spiritual, Stoic. I am good, Epicurean, I'm just not religious, so I don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this culture, the image of man was the ideal. Uh, it, you could also say it was the image of Adam from the garden, that the pursuit of the idealized man. It, Adam it was the most idealized human being outside of Jesus Christ that ever lived before the fall. He was smarter, he was better, uh, he was wiser. He was in every way the ultimate um, creation of man before the fall. He lived in a perfect environment, and yet he still fell. And this is where the Athenians went wrong, is when they chose to worship man as the highest ideal, uh, the best they could do was Adam in the garden. And Adam ended up still being flawed, as well as Eve. So that was the image of man that Paul uh, was coming against, that Luke records, in the book of Acts. The second reflection is in this passage that we can take upon in terms of interpretation of the intrinsic nature of the human soul is the image of God. That the image of God exists within every single human being as well as a pursuit of the image of man. In verse 24 through 29, uh, to summarize, uh, we see this. In verse 24 and 25, Paul goes on to speak to the Areopagus and he says, God who made the world who is Lord of heaven and earth. 
He, he does not live in temples, Paul said. He doesn't depend upon man. Uh, but God, this God, he gives life and breath to everyone. Verse 26, Paul says that from one man, and that's Adam, that man, God made all the nations to inhabit the earth. And he has appointed the times and the boundaries of the lands in which they live in. That means that God has appointed the time in which you and I live, the nations that rule the earth together and, and, and where they rule and the times in which they rule. Verse 27, uh, Paul says that God did this so that we could seek God, that we could find him. because And then Paul quotes the, their, their own poets back to them uh, as evidence that this is true. He says, um, for God... In God, we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring, as Paul quotes their own poets and philosophers. Uh, This is Paul's message. His message is that God has created each one of us. God wants a relationship with each each one of us. Um, And that we, in some way, um, reflect some of the good things about God and We are created for relationship with God and others, and we have a dominion over the earth. And Paul would have been appealing to the image of God that resides in them to say, this is true. It's true not just because I'm saying it's true, because this is how you're made. Uh, Think about it. Is your conscience um, uh, warning you, or is it clean uh, when you hear the truth being told to you? And uh, theologians throughout church history have defined the image of God in three ways. Um, The the great theologians, um, uh, Augustine and Calvin, uh, define the image of God within every human being as in some way we have the capacity to reflect back to God some of his good characteristics, his righteous characteristics, um, that we, we tend to want what is good. We tend to think, want to think that people are good. We want to be thought of as a good person. And so in some broken, imperfect way, every single human being, uh, Augustine Calvin said that we have the ability to in some way reflect back God's character, although imperfectly. Um, Other theologians have defined the image of God as um, our need for relationship with one another is a reflection of the relationship between the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in relationship with one another, and we are created in his image, in their image, and so we are created for relationship with one another as evidence that the Trinity is in relationship. So uh, some theologians have defined the image of God as relationship. Other theologians have defined the image of God as dominion, that just as God has dominion over the earth and all that is in it, including us, um, God has given human beings dominion over the earth, a stewardship over all that is living and the resources of the earth, and that's a sign of the image of God. And you see uh, the image of God, whether it's character, relationship, or dominion, in the Garden of Eden. You see the image of God uh, inherently as Paul is speaking to the Athenians. And you also see the image of God for us today during the coronavirus event. Um, Character, relationship, dominion. Uh, How important has issues of character Uh, been heightened during the coronavirus event. As we look at our leaders and we look at how we're each handling our own situations at home or at work and under stress and changing conditions, and we look at our leaders, how important is the conversation on character in our culture, in our homes, and us wanting to believe that people can have good character? How how do we see that in culture? What about relationships? 
Um, how important has the conversation been during the coronavirus event in our relationships being cut off and changed and our need for relationship <coughs> for relationship with other people? <coughs> and thirdly, dominion. Uh, we don't like that our freedom has been taken away. We like to uh, have forward progress, believe in a future that's better tomorrow than it is today. And when that's taken away, uh, we feel violated and threatened. This is evidence, even today during the coronavirus event, of the image of God that is within us. And lastly, uh, our third interpretation from this passage to help us understand what's happening in the human soul is not just that we have a pursuit of the image of man outside of God, that we at the same time have the image of God inside of us uh, as we pursue the image of man. But thirdly, that Paul says that we can come to God through the image of Christ through Christ living through us. Verse 30 and 31. I'll read it. It says, he says, God, and then he says, now commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul would have been attacking through this. The Athenians pursuit of the image of man, saying that uh, your world of idolizing uh, uh, an unknown God, of idolizing yourselves through the philosophy of the Epicureans, the philosophy of the Stoics, um, that's a whole system of belief that's outside of God, and that's just the image of man. Uh, Paul would have been saying that the image of man is uh, false, And he also would have been saying that the image of God that is within us, whether it's our reflection of the goodness of God who has given life and breath to every human being, that's goodness, whether he's given um, uh, 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 us the need and the capacity for relationship when he says that um, God has established the boundaries and times in which men live together, uh, or whether that's dominion and and how those um, uh, empires of men rise or fall. Paul would have said, that even though we have the image of God, that's not enough. Even though you have the image of man, that's false. And so that's why he says in verse 30, repent. He says, God commands all men to repent. And here is the question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, his divine humanity, Jesus Christ's divine humanity is the ideal of who man should be? Or do you believe that man on his own is the ideal of who man should be. Um, I've been writing a book uh, where uh, on, on the church in the 21st century post-Christian culture, and one of the couple of chapters is talking about the central question that I feel that post-Christian culture is posing to the church, and it's this question. What does it mean to be human? And I want to just read to you, Uh, Just one excerpt. I've read this to some of the people in the church before from the book. It says, what does it mean to be human? Culture is searching. How is the church answering? How do we share about our new identity in Christ in a perpetual beta culture of constantly shifting identities that are real, fake, androgynous, erased, and stolen? How do we call people in the church to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow Jesus amidst a selfie-obsessed, self-absorbed, I am seen, therefore I am, cultural vacuum? 
How do we testify about the abundant life we have in Jesus to a culture already striving to maximize its human potential to be heroes and saviors? How do we communicate the righteousness of Christ to a culture that already detoxifies their bodies, meditates to mindful awareness, and seeks healthy, wealthy, happy, and holistic lives of wellness? How do we speak of the importance of a relationship with Jesus in a culture where people are now marrying robots, marrying holograms, and marrying themselves because they find them to be better substitutes than real-life human beings? Culture is asking, what does it mean to be human? The real question the church should be asking back is this, which humanity is living through you? And I think this is really the question that's being raised in this passage, is which humanity is living through people here in the 21st century post-Christian culture? Is it the humanity of of, um, the image of man? Is it the humanity that's just relying on being made in the image of God and that's going to be good enough? Or is it Jesus Christ's divine humanity living through us? Paul goes on to say in verse 31 uh, that God will judge the world, all the people in the world, with justice through Jesus Christ. He says, this is the man that has been appointed. He referenced a man earlier on saying, through one man we've all been created. That's Adam, and then we fell. But God has appointed, Paul says in verse 31, one man. What does he mean by appointed? He means that Jesus Christ was appointed to take on human form, to live perfectly God's law out in his life. And then he was appointed to go to the cross, to be crucified for our sins. And he says uh, that Jesus Christ was appointed. It's not that he uh, was appointed uh, through his example or his teachings primarily, but he was appointed through his incarnation and his crucifixion. It wasn't just his example. It wasn't just his teaching, but it was he himself. And he goes on to say that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead which means he is alive today, and he is alive in those of us who believe. The question is, is Jesus Christ's resurrection life living through you? We will be judged not primarily through Jesus' teachings and examples. Um, Did we live up to that? We will be judged by, do we have Jesus Christ who lived out the teachings of God, who exemplified who God is? Do we have Jesus Christ living in us? By faith. And finally, uh, in verse 32 through 33, it says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again. Um, and then Paul left the council. Um, but some of them believed. Uh, an Areopagite named uh, Dionysus and another woman named Damaris ended up believing. And I think we want to end there. Is that going to be our response? I mean, which one will you be here this morning? Uh, Will you be like most of the Areopagus who just left and didn't listen to Paul and sneered at him? Uh, When you hear the message of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and the judgment that God will judge us by Jesus Christ, not by our own works, not how good we've been, um, but by our standard versus Jesus' standard, that's what we be judged by. Um, Do you sneer at that? Like the, Areop- uh, like the Areopagus, the, the council that was there? Or are you like others who said, we will hear you again on this? And actually, Paul left the council, and he didn't come back 
to Athens, and in, it says in the New Testament. And so they didn't get to hear Paul again. And sometimes we can be in that place where I'll just keep waiting, I'll keep waiting, keep waiting. I'll, keep, I'll just wonder, you know, just let me think about it maybe one day. I'll hear this again one day. And then that was really it. You know, just like uh, Paul left the Athenians, and that was really their opportunity. Sometimes for some of you, this might be your only opportunity. And you have to realize that that's a possibility. And will you be like the Athenians who just waited? Or will you be like those few, like Dionysus and, uh, and Damaris, who gave their lives to Jesus Christ? And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, why not make this the day? Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and he rose again to overcome death so that if you believe in him and you follow him as Lord, as Paul says, if you believe he has risen from the dead and, has, uh, and you confess to follow him as Lord, uh, the Bible says you will be saved. Will you commit your life to that and receive today as the day of salvation to become a follower of Jesus Christ? For those of us in the church, uh, let's, uh, let's use this time in God's word to remind us of the importance of, of a correct interpretation, not just of culture, but of what is happening in human, the human soul. Um, how do we understand what is happening in people's lives? Um, are they living according to the image of man? Are they uh, relying on just the image of God as uh, that's good enough for God? Or are we living with the image of Christ, the presence of Christ in us, played out imperfectly, but Christ nonetheless living within us and his resurrected life bringing us life, us submitting to him, us being renewed through the word, through prayer, through um, uh, worshiping him, following him, obeying him, and submitting to him. And then that brings us life both now and in eternity. And so let's trust in that church. Let's remember that the most important message that Paul gave um, in, to the city of Athens was that we are to repent and we are to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. That is our message to a lost and dying world. And so let's go forward because God has prepared the church for this time. Uh, what is happening in our culture is nothing new to God. It happened way back in the first century. And uh, God is going to prevail here in the 21st century, like, just like he did then. And so uh, let's trust in our God. Let's believe in our God. And let's move forward uh, with the image of Christ in us.